This morning's scripture reading is found in Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23. Now, when he had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in the dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child and destroy him. And he arose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This is to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophets. Out of Egypt I call my son. When Herod, then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. He sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all the region who were two years or under according to the time that he has ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lament, lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he arose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in the city called Nazareth. So that was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. Well, so far in our study of the gospel according to Matthew, we have seen God actively be at work getting the world ready for the arrival of his son in the incarnation. Matthew brought us all the way back to Abraham. He showed us how God had been calling and using individuals even nations, for thousands of years. That God had prepared the whole world for the arrival of His Son, the eternal Son of God, taking on human flesh as a boy in Bethlehem in Judea. We saw as we looked through the genealogy time and time again that God had protected the line of the Messiah. This, this Messiah that had been promised to Abraham he protected this family line through disasters, through wars, and even at the outpouring of his own wrath because of the blatant and repeated sin of Israel. We have seen that even in the darkest moments, where there seemed like there could be nothing but despair, there was always hope. God had a plan that was not yet completed. God would accomplish His plan of redemption. And it would be fulfilled in the life and the sacrifice of His Son. In the last couple of weeks, we have focused on the events of the birth of Christ. 
we have seen how God ensured that even though He was rejected by His own people, that Jesus would not be denied the kind of worship and adulation that the King of Kings deserved. In our text today, we will see how God can, God's hand continued to act providentially to guide and protect as Joseph was led to take his family on a very unexpected journey. Well, since we started this journey through Matthew's Gospel, we have seen the use of different images, use of different men in the lineage of Christ to be types of the Messiah, to prepare us, to to speak to something of the nature and the work of Christ that would come. Today we're going to look at a couple more of those connections of Jesus revealed in the Old Testament. But before we do, I'd ask you to join me once more in prayer. Father, there are days when you give me the gift of being heightenedly aware of my own weakness, frailty, and inadequacy. Scripture teaches me that this is a gift, not a curse. To know that in my weakness, your strength is shown to be complete, total, full. Father, help me as I, as I deliver this message to be completely reliant on your Spirit. Father, I pray that you would give me the right words, the right tone in which to speak. Bring to mind those things that have been committed to memory, to study. Father, I pray for this congregation that Your Spirit would do what He has promised He would do, that Your Word would not return void, that hearts would be changed. That people would grow in their love for Christ, their appreciation of the Gospel, and their dedication to live faithfully, holy lives. All of this is possible only because of the work of Your Son, and only because of Your Spirit applying that work in our lives. You get the glory, the honor, and the praise in all things. In Christ's name, Amen. Well, this morning I want to start by walking through the events that caused Joseph to take his family from Bethlehem to Egypt, and then ultimately to Nazareth in Galilee. And then once we have a good understanding of the events that took place, we'll go back and look a little bit more closely about what was going on. In all of this, we need to keep in the front of our minds that God left nothing to chance in His plan of redemption. This is an important reality that we ought always to keep before us. We need to become very comfortable with this reality that God never leaves anything to chance. There is no such thing as chance. God is sovereign over all. In all things, whether or not we understand the why, all things occur according to His intention, according to His providence. Well, Jesus faced great dangers throughout all of His life, but even in His early years and before His birth. 
Jesus was in real danger of being born to a woman who herself had been rejected and abandoned. Remember from just a couple of weeks ago as we looked at chapter 2, that Joseph realized his betrothed was pregnant, and he knew the child was not his own. Remember that Joseph was going to do the thing that was both righteous and merciful and divorce her quietly. If he would have done that, Mary and Jesus would have been left on their own. They would have carried a great amount of shame and disgrace for the rest of their lives. So how did God the Father protect His Son? Well, we read in Matthew 1, 20 and 21 that God sent a messenger to Joseph. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So how did Joseph respond to that call? Well, he believed what God had told him. Joseph denied the easier course that would have been his by right, and he agreed to shoulder the responsibility that he didn't have to bear. And instead of being left to fend for themselves in a very cruel and cold world, Mary and Jesus had a faithful provider and protector. Joseph would have his plans changed four different times because of the message he received in a dream or from an angel from the Lord. The second of those times is in our text for this morning. This warning came to Joseph after the Magi had come and visited his young adopted son. We find that in verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there till I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Well, how did Joseph respond this time? Again, he obeyed. They left during the night for Egypt and once again Jesus was protected. This time, he was rescued from the massacre that was about to take place in Bethlehem. Well, I don't know about you, but for me, Egypt seems a very odd choice to send the Messiah of Israel at such a vulnerable point in his life. Now, we are going to look a little bit later about how that fulfills prophecy and allows Jesus to be able to identify with his people. But as for this point now, just know that that decision was not an accident or random. It wasn't just God drawing a name out of a hat and saying, take him there and flee there. So there were actually some pretty pragmatic reasons why it would be a good, it would make sense to take Jesus to Egypt. At this point in history, there was a sizable Jewish population in Egypt. Before the deportation to Babylon, Many of the inhabitants of Jerusalem and Judea fled to Egypt, thinking that they would find salvation in Egypt from the oppression that was about to come at the hands of Babylon. They looked to Egypt as a sort of salvation, a sort of saving force, a safe refuge. Of course, that shouldn't surprise us. 
Since Moses first led the Israelites out of Egypt, there had been those among them that continued to look back to Egypt with a sense of longing. That somehow they forgot the pains of bondage and slavery, and they only remembered the perceived stability and the security that life in Egypt offered them. Even if it was a pagan land, there was something familiar and dependable about Egypt. This impulse was so strong throughout the history of the nation of Israel that God warned His people time and again not to look back to Egypt, not to trust in the chariots of Egypt for their security. It became a very battle over whether or not God's people would trust in God and His protection or they would turn instead to Egypt. So it was a matter of faithfulness and idolatry. Well, the Jews that were living in Egypt in Jesus' day were the descendants of those men and women who put their trust in Egypt rather than in the one true God. Even so, their presence in that land was used by God to create a soft landing place for His Son as He was forced into exile at such a young age because of the selfish destruction and the murderous rage of a pretender to David's throne. See, it truly was a horrific act that Herod, of Herod that drove Joseph and his young family away from the relative safety and comfort in Bethlehem. Herod was known, especially as he got closer to his death, to be an irrational and a paranoid leader. He was prone to killing anybody that would make a claim against his throne even when that threat came from his own sons. Of course, when he heard of a child that was born king, Herod's heart became bent on finding and destroying Jesus, ending the threat to his throne in Jerusalem. Of course, it wasn't just Joseph that God directed in order to protect Jesus in these early days of his life. The Magi that God had directed from the east that had brought them there, that there would be a world presence there to worship and bow down before the feet of his son, these Magi were also warned in their dreams. In verse 12 it says, And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Of course, Herod had in mind to use them in order to find this child of prophecy. Yet once again, God acted in order to protect His Son, to protect the hope of the nations. As always, God did not simply sit back and watch the world events take place. That is never His way. God guided the paths of men and secured the safety of His only begotten Son and the fulfillment of Scripture. Of course, Herod's response to the Magi's refusal to help him is exactly the kind of well-adjusted and reasonable response that you would expect from a paranoid despot with near-absolute authority. We read in verse 16, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem in all that region who were two years old or under, 
according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Herod's plan to use them in order to capture, to kill, to destroy this threat to his throne failed, and he resorted to an act of rage and desperation, ordering the slaughter of all the male children in and around Bethlehem. He believed surely this would prevent this usurper. Well, he must acknowledge that the extent of this massacre is often exaggerated, but it doesn't need to be to display the tragic loss of life and also reveal the wickedness of Herod's hearts. Based on the population of Bethlehem at that time, it is likely that no more than a couple dozen of children fell prey to the madness of Herod. Of course, this does not diminish the horrific nature of the act of Herod, but it does explain why you don't find this account anywhere else in Scripture or in secular history. This was Matthew included this for a specific purpose, to draw our minds in a particular direction. But for anyone else, this was just another of the, the many murderous, insane acts of the pretender king. Of course, even in seeking to carry out the ruthless killing of a child, Herod showed that he had absolute no value for human life. Bethlehem was just a few miles away from Jerusalem, and the population was small. It would not have been difficult at all for Herod to be able to send his agents to be able to find out the child, to find the one who fit the description. If you think about it, how many children do you think that were born in Bethlehem over this two-year period of time were visited by wise men from the east? How many were lavished with rich gifts from these kingmakers from distant lands? Do you think that anyone in Bethlehem wouldn't have known who the child was that these great pagan lords had come and bowed down before? Even so, in a combination of rage and carelessness for human life, Herod simply ordered all the boys under two years old to be destroyed as if they were diseased cattle or unwanted pests. And Matthew tied this tragedy to that faced by Jeremiah, where he speaks of Rachel lamenting from the grave over the loss of her descendants as the children of Israel were carried away from Jerusalem into the deportation to Babylon. And in that time of the days of Jeremiah, just as in this time here, there was not only loss, but there was hope. But we're going to look at that aspect a little bit later on. The third time God directed Joseph was after the death of Herod. We read in verses 19 through 21, But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. Yet again, faithful Joseph obeyed. He packed up his family and he left Egypt, apparently planning to go and settle where they had been before, somewhere near Bethlehem. 
But as they traveled close to Bethlehem, Joseph learned that Herod's son, Archelaus, was reigning in Jerusalem. And he was afraid because he knew that Herod's son would have the same kind of reason and motivation to kill his, his adopted son, Jesus, that Herod had had before him. Read in verses 22 and 23. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judah in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Though they were able to leave Egypt, they could not return to Bethlehem. They instead settled in the region of Galilee in the city of Nazareth. We do read that Joseph was warned in a dream, but even before he was warned, it is said that he was afraid to return to where he came from. You might say that seems like a very small detail. Yet it shows how Joseph was acting faithfully as the protector and the provider for Mary and for Jesus. Even when he was following the leading of God and obeying as he had been commanded, he understood his role as protector, that he must be wise in how he obeyed. It was still for him to know what was going on in the world, to lead them in the right direction. We would do well to learn from this lesson. We must obey when and where and how God leads us. Even so, we must still walk in wisdom and understanding. We still must rightly evaluate the signs and the times of the world around us. Even when God calls us to radical obedience, even when God calls us to things that the world around us calls foolish, wisdom remains precious to us. And wisdom remains a protection for our steps. So even as Joseph was being obedient to the calling of the Lord, he yet had wisdom in how he directed them. Matthew stated that this fulfilled the prophecy that the Messiah would be called a Nazarene. While this is yet another instance of Jesus fulfilling prophecies that have been made before his birth, this example is a little different. If you type in, he will be called a Nazarene into a word search, and you go looking for the Old Testament reference, you aren't going to find it. In fact, this town was not even yet in existence in the days of the Old Testament prophets. So, so what was going on here? Well, Matthew was most likely pulling from other references, maybe even using a play on words in Hebrew as the source of this prophecy. Of course, the important thing to realize here is to recognize that to the first century Jew, Galilee was looked upon with disdain particularly the city of Nazareth. And that had to do with the amount of Gentiles that were in the area, the amount to which the Jewish population lived in and among and friendly among the Gentiles there because it was a place of trade. Later, when Jesus would call the disciples, Nathanael learned that Jesus was from Nazareth. Well, how, did, how, did Nathaniel learn, well, how did he respond knowing that Jesus was from Nazareth? said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Or another time when Jesus was being questioned by the Pharisees, he would be asked, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. 
This was the fulfillment of a negative sentiment that would be expressed toward the Messiah that the prophets foretold. Find examples of that expectation from Zechariah, from Isaiah, and even from David. As all of them tell of the servant of God who would be mistreated, who would be mocked, who would be ridiculed. Well, I did mention earlier that after covering the events described in the text, we would shift gears a bit and dive more into what was going on, as though to look behind the scenes or under the surface. If we remember that from this text, the first prophecy that Matthew said was fulfilled by these actions taken by Joseph was taken from Hosea 11.1, which reads, when, the child, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Well, this phrase that Matthew, under the inspiration of the Spirit, applies to Jesus and said is fulfilled in Jesus is just one of a number of, in this passage, that talks about God's great fatherly love and care for His people. This fatherly love that has its purest and its fullest resonance in the love of the Father for His eternal Son. Just a few examples in verse 1 of chapter 11 of Hosea. When Israel was a child, I loved him. We read that. In verse 3, it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by the arms. Verse 4, I led them with the cords of kindness, with the bands of love. Of course, the devastating reality in Hosea, as he was writing these words was that even though God had so tenderly, carefully, patiently, faithfully cared for Israel, the nation rejected Him. The nation continually went after other gods, continually turned to the gods of the nations. Beloved, this contrast between the tender loving kindness of God and the stiff-necked rebellion of the objects of His love This contrast is haunting. But, and this is an important distinction, there would be one who would be a fulfillment of Israel. There would be one who would receive that same fatherly love and care from the Father. There would be one who would be deserving of that love and who would respond in faithfulness and obedience. Matthew points us to the Messiah who would receive that same love and tender care from the Father, just as Israel had, yet He would be faithful in all things. This connection between Israel and Jesus is strengthened by the fact that He too would be exiled from His home. He too would be a wanderer and a stranger in the land of Egypt he too would need to be called by God out of that land and back to the land promised to Abraham and his descendants. Jesus walked in the very footsteps of Israel. Well, author draws our attention to another in Old Testament history who was a type of the Messiah to come. As I mentioned before, Matthew is our only recorded source for the account of Herod's slaughter of these young male children in Bethlehem. No doubt to the audience that first read this, 
this reminded them of another famous massacre of babies where one child would escape and later become the savior of his people. Matthew surely understood that recounting this tale would bring to the mind of his audience the story of Moses. It certainly did for me. The story of Moses draws several parallels with that of Jesus. They both survived a massacre that was inspired by the insecurity of a wicked king who oppressed God's people. Both were forced to flee their homeland until that king died and they were called by God to come back. Both Moses and Jesus were great prophets of God who enjoyed a relationship with the Father that no one else around them understood or was able to enjoy. Both men would be used by God to deliver His people out of bondage. Moses was a type of the Messiah that was to come. In very real ways, Moses represented God to the men and men to God. Yet, even though he was this great figure in the history of Israel, and Moses is a great figure in the history of Israel, known as the bringer of the law, that is often referred to as the law of Moses. Even though he was great, he was not greater than the one who would follow. One of the things that Jesus said that most enraged the spiritual leaders of the day was when Jesus boldly proclaimed that he was superior to Moses. When Jesus said that before Moses was born, I am in John 8:58 Moses may have been the author of the first 5 books of the Bible yet Jesus is the word of God incarnate Moses was given the words of God for the people Jesus is God Moses was able to speak to God face to face as a man would speak to his friend Jesus was the very son of God that for all eternity before had enjoyed perfect union with the Father. And even as He walked on this earth, Jesus remained perfectly united to the Father by the Holy Spirit. Moses freed Israel from the bondage of slavery in Egypt. Jesus saved all the nations from all the nations, all those who would believe in Him. And Jesus the salvation that came in Jesus was not just from a political enemy, but from the very bondage to sin and the death that it brings. Jesus came not to supplant Moses and the law, but rather to fulfill all the law had promised, yet what the law was unable to provide. We're looking again at verse 18 in our text this morning. Matthew recounts the words of Jeremiah from Jeremiah 31:15, which reads, "Thus says the Lord: A voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more." It's not too hard to understand why Matthew would draw our attention back to this phrase, to this passage spoken by Jeremiah. 
even if the numbers were relatively small, most families in that town would have been affected by this tragedy. Even if it weren't for the loss of their own child, then it would have been the child of a, of a relative or of a friend. There would have been many voices in Bethlehem at this time crying out bitterly, refusing to be comforted because their sons had been murdered on the selfish and destructive whims of a madman pretending to be king. As a father, I have to stop myself from trying to think too deeply into what that would be like. Trying just to understand too much. It's, it's painful to try and empathize. Ultimately, I think even destructive to try and empathize and put yourself too much in that place. It is a tragedy to lose a child. That is, that is something most people don't come all the way back from. They will always be affected by it. And how much worse when that child is murdered by the state and you have absolutely, absolutely no recourse for justice. See, I don't doubt that Matthew intended the pain of that loss to wash over his audience. Yet, I don't believe that is the main reason that Matthew was quoting from Jeremiah. This verse is heart-wrenching, especially when we consider it in the context of the children of Judah being carried off by an invading army, never to return to their homeland. And remember, that is the context in Jeremiah. However, the greater context of Jeremiah 31 is not heartache, but it's God's promise that He will turn their mourning into joy. You don't have to turn there right now, but I want to give you some examples to show you the flow of this chapter so we can see that this, how this message that was given to Jeremiah was ultimately a message of hope. And it's this hope that I believe Matthew was relaying was at hand in the arrival of the Son of God. Well, verse 1 of Jeremiah 31 says, At this time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel, and they shall be my people. Verse 3, I have loved you with an everlasting love, therefore I have continued my faithfulness to you. Verses 7 and 8, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the farthest parts of the earth. Verse 9, with weeping they shall come, and with pleas for mercy I will lead them back. Verse 13, I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. And there we have verse 15 that we mentioned before. A voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. It goes on in verse 16, Thus says the Lord, Keep your voice from weeping and your eye from tears. And verse 17, There is hope for your future, declares the Lord. Well, in the broader context, that passage recognizes the despair and the darkness of the situation, yet it called the reader to have hope called the reader to trust in God. There was something that God was doing in the midst of the darkness and the despair. 
when the people of God were once again in a very difficult and dark time at the coming of the Messiah. After they had won a brief independence under the Maccabees, the nation was once again under the subject of a foreign power. While I have no doubt that God kept for Himself a faithful remnant, the nation as a whole had turned to vain philosophies and the traditions of men rather than staying faithful to the heart of God and the right understanding of His law. And by the time Matthew's audience would read this gospel, by the time these words were penned, the nation of Israel had already proven itself completely and finally faithless in their rejection of the Son of God, culminating in their demand for His death and their welcoming upon themselves as they said, let His blood be upon our heads. Let His blood be upon our children. The darkness of the people was truly great. Even so, even out of that darkness, God in His Son had acted in His everlasting love to wipe away all tears and to turn sorrow into joy. Jesus didn't stay dead. And blinded eyes were being given their sight as the veil was removed day after day as those who believed were being added to their numbers. In Christ, the end is not darkness. In Christ, there is life. There is light. Weeping over sin is turned to rejoicing as we experience and we resonate and we understand the imputed righteousness of the faithful Son of God that is given to us. Even so, there are hard times. But there is joy. Let's change gears again just a little bit for a moment. I think this is a natural question to ask when we discuss things like this. Would it not have been easier for for God to protect Jesus by simply preventing Herod from killing the babies in Jerusalem, in Bethlehem? Even if Jesus needed to flee to Egypt, or if he had to go there, would it not have been better for God to simply tell Joseph to go to Egypt rather than allowing the paranoia of Herod to needlessly snuff out the lives of so many children? And that's a very natural question to ask as we approach events like this in Scripture or in history. But I will respond with the same answer that I would give for the even greater loss of life suffered in the days of Moses at the hands of Pharaoh in Egypt. God did not prevent the loss of life because He had a greater purpose in mind. He designed to use the tragedy as a tool to bring about His redemptive plan for His people. We see this most clearly in the the story of Moses. Because in the day of Moses, God used the widespread loss of Israel's sons in order to bring Moses into the house of Pharaoh. Because of this loss of life, 
Moses was raised in the house of Pharaoh as a prince in Egypt. The life he would have lived in the palace of Pharaoh would uniquely prepare him for the role that God had for him to lead his people out of slavery, to be able to bring them into the land promised to them, promised to their fathers, Abraham and Jacob. I believe the role of a similar tragedy in the the days of Jesus was quite the same. God used the madness and the cruelty of Herod to drive Joseph with Mary out of the city of David and into Egypt. Not simply to fulfill the prophecy that God would call His Son out of Egypt, but so that the greater purposes of Christ would be displayed. Because even from this tender young age, Jesus was rejected by His people. Even from His birth, His life was desired from Him because of who He was. Jesus would face rejection His whole life. Yet even this rejection had a purpose in the redemptive plan of God. The rejection of His people that led to the inclusion of the nations to the blessing of God's salvation. Sure, God could free us from all pain and suffering, and one day He will. The curse of sin has brought down endless amounts of suffering and trials on this earth. Yet even in the apparent chaos, God is still God. God is still greater than our struggles and our trials. And He uses them to accomplish His eternal plan on earth, the redemption of the bride for His Son. Beloved, no one has ever suffered more than Jesus did on this earth. Yet even His suffering, which is the only undeserved suffering ever to have been endured on this earth, we ought to remember that when we feel we are being treated poorly, or that God is unfair, Jesus Christ is the only one who has ever suffered without deserving it, and much more. So no one has suffered more than Jesus. And even in that suffering of the innocent, God was at work to accomplish our good, to accomplish His glory. No suffering or tragedy is so great that we cannot still find hope and peace in the hands of our all-powerful, all-loving, all-knowing, perfect God of the universe. All glory to God. There's one last thing I want us to consider as an underlying theme of our passage this morning. And that is the faithfulness and self-sacrifice of Joseph displayed against the murderous self-interest of Herod. Our focus has been primarily on what God was doing in the life of Messiah and how that related to His purposes on the earth. Even so, there's a lot for us to learn and be motivated by when we see this dark contrast of Joseph and Herod. Once again, remember the situation of Joseph. He listened to the voice of God and he married Mary, even though she was pregnant with a child that wasn't his. Even though conceived by God, 
Jesus did not have to be His responsibility to care for. But He responded by taking upon Himself the fullness of the role of husband and father to protect and provide for Mary as His wife and to care for Jesus as though He was His own flesh and blood. Joseph sacrificed whatever plans and dreams he had for his life. He sacrificed his extended family and whatever stability and comfort his homeland would have offered him in order to protect Mary and Jesus. To care for the woman that he had covenanted to love and the child that he had chosen to embrace as his own. We don't know a lot about Joseph. But this is the legacy that Matthew gives us for him, immortalized in the pages of Scripture. What about Herod? How will Herod forever be known? As we talked about before, we know from history that Herod was an insecure, paranoid, violent man. He was consumed by establishing, projecting, and protecting the image of himself as this great king and builder. What we see in our text is when this position was threatened, even by the birth of a child born to unimportant people in an unimportant city, he responded with deception, manipulation, and ultimately murderous rage. His actions were destructive and selfish. He was so self-absorbed that the lives of others meant nothing to him. Think of the contrast between Joseph and Herod. Joseph was faithful to sacrifice of himself to protect and provide for the child born to his betrothed. Herod was destructive, self-focused, and devastating to all who were unfortunate enough to stand in the way of him achieving and maintaining the image that he designed for himself. Think of the contrast between the selfless actions of one to protect life and the selfish disregard for life on the other. The life-saving actions of the one, the murderous results of the other. Beloved, we live in a society full of Herods. Worse yet, we live in a nation that celebrates the pursuit and the worship of self-determinism, self-liberation, self-identity, and self-creation to such a degree that any cost must be paid to protect one's desired personal image, position, and influence. We live in a society so committed to the service of the individual's autonomous ability to be whatever they can imagine that people don't even bat an eye at the turning upside down of God's created order. Even if that means mutilating healthy bodies and demanding that people speak lies over one another, saying what they know to be false, just to pad a person's fragile self-image and ego. We are a society so committed to a person's rights to individuality and selfish ambition that we have murdered tens of millions of children who simply had the audacity to be conceived 
at the time and place that was inconvenient to the whim of their mothers and fathers. Beloved, the people of God must be devoted to the preservation and the protection of life. We must be devoted to the order that God has given us in His creation. We cannot, we must not, quiet our voices or withhold our involvement. We cannot, we must not simply hide out with our own and hope and pray that the chaos and the devastation wrought by selfish, deceived, and evil men will somehow pass us by. We must be a people that are willing to stand on God's truth, willing to proclaim the beauty in the order of God's creation. We must be a people whose eyes are open to the evils of this culture that is obsessed with trying to reshape reality in whatever new and perverted way that wicked men can devise. As the body of Christ, we need to take, more, take on more of the mindset of Joseph. He took on responsibilities and care that didn't have to be his. He protected the most vulnerable from the murderous passions of the state. Beloved, those in power in our nation are no less insane and murderous in their self-interest than Herod was. We have leaders and authorities all over in our nation that bend their will toward the destruction of innocence. This nation has developed a system of altars throughout the land for the offering up of our children as gruesome sacrifices that are so great, so plentiful, that even the most devoted servants of Molech could not have imagined it. And they are not content to simply allow for the selfish murder of children they celebrate this man-made right, and they pour out their wrath and their venom on any who would call this sacred right of their new religion into question. And as for those children who escape the death sentence of the unborn, they are left to navigate in a world that demands they challenge what they were made to be, that demands that to really embrace humanity, they must chart a new path for themselves, no matter how destructive that road becomes. Beloved, we live in a land with far greater evil than Herod all around us. And we, as God's people, must understand the value of life and be willing to sacrifice of ourselves to protect it wherever we are able we must not, we cannot become conformed to the self-worshipping spirit of this age. Beloved, this is a very important thing to know, to remember, to come to grasps with, to embrace, to love. That God's greatest desire for us is not that we would be happy. It's about the most un-American thing I think I can say in today's culture. God's greatest desire for us is not that we would be happy. Certainly not 
according to whatever twisted fantasy our depraved minds might come up with. Now, God's greatest desire for us is that we would be holy. That we would be holy. We are not commanded to be happy as God is happy. We are commanded to be holy as He is holy. Understand that one does not need to lash out in the kind of murderous frenzy of Herod to share in the wickedness of his heart. How often are we tempted to act in ways that disregard the good of others just to secure our own desires? The steady beating drum of this culture calls on us to reach out to seize happiness even when it means that we grasp and we take that which we have not earned. Even if we must take it by force from someone else who did. Cultural acceptability does not equal approval of God. Our nation routinely approves of murder, destruction, and chaos. Beloved, do not look to the standards of this world. Look instead to God's Word. Look instead to the examples of the faithful that have gone before us as they have sacrificed of themselves to be obedient, to be faithful, to be providers and protectors. Follow in their footsteps. Finally, I want to end with a word of hope. We do find ourselves in an increasingly dark and chaotic age. We can't see all of what God is doing or working to bring about. That is part of the thing where we have to hope and trust in God because He has proven Himself faithful generation after generation. Nobody gets to see the inner workings of the mind of God as He is working. But we trust in Him because He has been ever faithful. Remember who it is that sits enthroned at the right hand of the Father. Remember who it was that said, all authority has been given to me. Remember that nothing is happening around us that is not under the direct control and all according to the predetermined plan of our God. The faithful loving kindness of God has never been, nor will it ever be, absent or distant to those that He has called and set His love upon. Our journeys may not always be as direct as we would have liked, and we may be called to wander in exile from time to time, yet God's purposes will stand, and God holds us in His hand. Father, may these truths not seem something distant or cold, May, may these truths of your control, your love, your purposes, your, your providential working, give us a sense of peace, of comfort, of joy and satisfaction. Father, remove any scales that might be on our eyes about what is really going on around us in this world. Let us not be deceived. 
Let us not embrace the spirit of this age. Draw us to your word, your standards, your hope. Teach us what it is to cling to Christ, knowing that nothing can take us out of his hand. There's nothing that man can do to separate us from the love of our Father in heaven. To God be the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.